This is the Education Gadfly Show. After they got this Mac Daddy gift, um, do people, people still use that word? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas P. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest of the week, the Michael A. Taylor of Education Reform, Sarah Mead, a partner at Bellwether, where, among the many other things, she directs the org's early childhood work. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Alyssa. Thank you. Were you watching the Nationals last week in the playoffs? I'm sorry to admit that. <laughs> well, you know who Michael A. Taylor is? And hello, Brandon. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> it's Hi. Okay. I'm Brandon. So wow. he's this baby. I think he's like 17 years old, but he hit all of these he grand slams. He looks like he's about 17. Okay. But hit one grand slam, but then he had another four RBI game. Um, runs he goes I know that. formally by Michael A. Period Taylor. Don't know why, but four. he does. It's like how Michael B. Jordan also gets to be Michael. Well, that one actually well, now makes more sense because that one makes sense. Yeah. So I'm not normally the one bringing the sports references, but I got super into like the last game and I was at a conference and we're in the hotel bar and I'm like just watching the game, shouting at the TV. And they're like, you must be a super passionate Nats fan. I'm like, not really. No, but it was fun for a week. And then they lost to the Cubs and the Cubs have squandered their victory over the Nats. They're down three games to zero against the Dodgers. See, I didn't even know that because I stopped paying attention, but that's why they call this the Ed Reform Podcast and not <laughs> the Sports Podcast. So let's play Ed Reform Update. All right. So Sarah, you direct much of the early childhood work at Bellwether. You've authored a ton of papers on it and done a lot of work on that. I'm a former kindergarten teacher, so I love early childhood. So since I got to pick the topic today, Mike is clearly away. I wanted to chat about what's coming next for early childhood. So great. Awesome. So a couple of years ago, you know, there was, I think, a lot of action around early childhood, a lot of expansion kind of at the local and state level. You kept hearing pre-K for all. And that seems, from my perspective, to have died down a bit in the last couple of years. Like, is this still something that is being pushed on that people are really working to implement? So I think there's still a lot of energy around mm -hmm. early childhood. And I think, if anything, the research base about why this is so important mm -hmm. to um, do for children and for educational outcomes and for our economy has actually grown mm -hmm. in the past five to seven years or so. Um in terms of just a brief historical overview here, from about the mid to late 90s um, through the start of the recession, mm -hmm. we saw a lot of expansion in state-funded pre-K programs, which were mostly for four-year-olds, um, mostly really targeted around school readiness and mm -hmm. um, state-funded. And then, you know, the recession hit, states didn't have money, and we mm -hmm. saw... Um, a pause in most of that state pre-K expansion mm -hmm. and also in a lot of places, pretty significant cuts in um, funding for child care subsidies, which are also a really important service for infants and toddlers and mm -hmm. preschoolers. Um, as states have started to recover economically, although we know some are still facing really significant budget shortages, um, we've started to see um, some of those losses getting made up, particularly on the pre-K side, not as much on child care. Mm -hmm. And so I think the last couple years, the um, National Institute for Early Education Research, which does a sort of annual scan of state pre-K programs has finally seen sort of catching back up in terms of the numbers of kids being served in state-funded programs, mm -hmm. in terms of the average funding on those programs. Now, state pre-K programs are not by far the only early childhood programs. Right. Um, and we have seen um, a lot of local activity and I think we'll increasingly see local activity around both pre-K um, for three and four-year-olds and broader sort of early childhood activities. You know, we've seen San Antonio, San Francisco, mm -hmm. Denver, um, 
because we're at Fordham, I have to mention Dayton and Cincinnati. <laughs> yes. um, so lots of um, locally driven activity, the, which is great in a lot mm-hmm. of cases for those kids. The, the concern there is that, um, you know, our Secretary of Education likes to talk about how zip code shouldn't determine children's educational opportunities. Right. Um, there are much bigger geographic inequities in access to early childhood education than there are even in K-12. And, and those will only intensify if this trend continues. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, zip code not determining a child's educational opportunities that's a little different when the child is 16 and can get themselves to a high school or to a different uh, educational center or take something online where they don't have to be quite as you know constantly supervised and engaged but that's a little different when you're four years old and your parents are driving you places well I think the reality is that there are just huge disparities in the kinds of services that Mm -hmm. are available both on the market and um, from publicly funded entities depending on what's state and community a child lives in. So here in D.C., um, virtually all three and four-year-olds whose families want them to go to pre-K can. Um, If you look at, say, Las Vegas, Nevada, only less than half, about 46% of three and four-year-olds are in preschool. And that's counting children whose parents are paying the full cost for them to attend. So Mm -hmm. we see these huge disparities, um, big disparities across states in the percentage of kids served in pre-K programs. Even if we look at Head Start, which is a federally funded program, there are big disparities in the percentage of poor kids served um, across different states, across different parts of states. Is that, do you see more of a funding issue? You know, some states have less funding for education in general less of a tax base so they can't necessarily expand programs or a matter of kind of personal preference. You know, there's a big push for when they're that young, a lot of the educational decisions should be kind of closer to home driven by parents. Sure. So a big piece of it is political will and public policy. Mm -hmm. So um, even a state like Texas, for example, provides pre-K for pretty much all low-income four-year-olds. Similarly, in Louisiana, um, Oklahoma, Florida, Georgia have universal pre-K. Those are Mm -hmm. policy decisions that have been made by elected Mm -hmm. officials about how to spend money. Now, there may be other decisions that are being made in those states about the quality of those programs or about education funding overall that we might disagree with, but those are policy decisions. Um, At the same time, though, you know, there are choices that families are making. If we look, though, at income trends, if we look at other countries that are in the developed world, Mm -hmm. the U.S. is just a bit of an outlier um, in terms of being at the low end in the percentage of three and four-year-olds enrolled in some kind of educational program, um, including lagging countries like Mexico. Um, And and it's also just the the case that, um, you know, when we talk about choice, the reality is a lot of these programs are designed to have a kind of diverse delivery where you have um, schools serving kids, but you also have contracts with community-based organizations. Mm-hmm. You have Head Start um, in a number of states, uh, religious organizations Church. can even offer publicly funded mm-hmm. preschool. Um, and so I think when we try to apply that sort of K-12 education paradigm to what this looks like, we, we can get confused. So, so you mentioned parent choice. Um, I actually found through a retweet of yours um, an interesting site. I think it's called Zero to Three. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a survey and some of the takeaways really actually shocked me. Um, and it led me to question even if families are making this choice, to what extent are these choices actually based on misinformation or misunderstanding? So I'm going to give you three quick findings that I found absolutely shocking. 50% of parents thought that the quality of their care wouldn't affect their child long-term until they were six months old. It's birth. 45% of parents thought that reading to their kid wouldn't have any long-term benefit until they were two. It's six months. 
And 34% of parents thought that talking to their child wouldn't have a long-term benefit until they were one year old to birth. So I brought this up and mm-hmm. Alyssa asked, well, like, so what is a, like a policy solution to this? And I don't know, right? It's a very sort of difficult question. Like what role should the state have? Could it have, even if it should, in making these important facts known to more parents? In the fake news era. Sure. 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 And I think it's important to note that like for folks who've been educated and marinated in sort of a climate where most of the parents that we know are like hyper obsessed with their children's development, those things Mm -hmm. seem obvious for a person just sort of naturally looking at an infant who can't talk back to you. It's not intuitive that I should talk to my infant because my infant can't talk. My infant doesn't understand what I'm saying. And it it actually takes some counterintuitive understanding okay. of an education of people to understand that, oh, how the baby learns to talk is by me talking to them. It's not just mm-hmm. we wait till the baby can talk to talk to them. So I don't want to sort of like demonize parents. About no, no, this no, no I'm not trying to do that either, which is why I asked, like, should the state even yeah. do anything? Because that's that's a very, very big first question. Mm-hmm. Should yeah. They, so should it? So there are some things that government programs have done in this regard that um, that I think are quite positive, particularly for very high risk families. So one of the things that um, was funded in the Affordable Care Act and um, is also funded in a lot of states mm-hmm. is home visiting programs. And these are programs that typically identify um, high risk families. So it might be first time moms. It might be, you know, teen moms. It might be parents with other risk factors low birth weight babies, substance abuse, what have you, um, and then um, provide trained professionals, which could be anything from a paraprofessional to a highly trained person like a nurse, um, go in and frequently work with the moms even while they're pregnant to sort of, you know, support them to be ready to have a healthy birth. Um, there's often sort of a medical component integrated with all of this, um, you know, help them do things like quit smoking while they're pregnant, um, then sort of work with them after the child is born to help them support their children's development, you know, discourage corporal punishment, mm-hmm. encourage them to talk to the baby, what have you. In these programs, there's a number of evidence-based models um, that have evidence that they produce lasting benefits both for moms and for kids. Um, and they have sort of different focuses and approaches, but they've been rigorously studied. And so one thing that government has done has funded those services because the funding for them has to come from somewhere. Um, Philanthropic organizations, states, local governments also fund some of this work um, and some of it's funded on the health side too. All these programs are completely voluntary. People can opt out of them. Nobody can force you to be in them, but they are an important resource and they are evidence-based and have positive impacts in that birth to three period because we know that achievement gaps are visible as early as nine months mm-hmm. in age. Yeah. and Two million words. And that's a great point too. I mentioned this when we were choosing this topic, right? That in sort of ed policy, we we almost, almost exclusively talk about K-12, right? But we also just so often talk about achievement gaps and how to close those and stuff. And we all acknowledge that they start young and that and that trying to close them, we should start young. But somehow that so often doesn't extend to more and more talk about things before kindergarten. Um, I mean, I think- like, like it, it just seems like such a strange, a strange phenomenon in ed policy to me after being in it four or five years that, that, yep. that there's this sort of resistance to talking about anything before kindergarten. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I did some work with you all, my mm-hmm. colleague Ashley Labetti Mitchell and I to look at charter schools and pre-K mm-hmm. and we looked at that for exactly this reason. But one of the things that I've found through that work and the continuation of it is that one of what I think is the positive effects of the growth of 
charter school networks and of some of the human capital organizations in the K-12 space is that as some of those organizations have moved forward working to close the achievement gap, they've seen the crucial importance of what happens to kids before they get to school and have been sort of pushing their efforts down into sort of how do we engage with families? How do we support kids? So um, you've seen growth in the number of charter schools serving pre-K, KIPP, for example, um, now where they can access the funding and and deliver the services is offering pre-K in a number of their regions. We have research by Mathematica that shows that um, those programs have positive benefits for kids. I was just talking yesterday to um, your colleague, Ian Rowe, who writes for um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the the gadfly sometimes um, about the work that public prep and girls prep are doing. They now are a pre-K operator in New York City's mm-hmm. UPK program and have been thinking a lot about sort of how do we sort of engage with families even earlier because they are seeing mm-hmm. that um, even when kids are getting into their pre-K program, the effects of experiences that children have at much younger ages are, are showing up in big gaps by yeah. the time kids get to school. And I think there are lots of examples if you look across the country of um, you know charter schools that have grown out of community-based organizations that started Mm -hmm. with an early childhood mission. Similarly, you know, charter schools that are looking at how do we support kids younger or um, even if charter schools that are working with parenting students at some point, sort of thinking about how they can support those children. Um, And then we also see um, both um, Teach for America and Mm -hmm. TNTP um, do increasingly work in early childhood and organizations like Mm -hmm. the Teacher Center as well. So Mm -hmm. we're seeing more blending of that world on the operator side and on the side of people who are actually doing work on the ground with (laughs) kids and families. It's the public policies that are behind and it's, you know, our policies operate in really, really siloed ways. Um, And I think there are also just some um, different policy paradigms that can make it hard to think about how do we build a more aligned system of supports for kids and families. Yeah, I would say I think that we're unique among kind of Western cultures and the you know, countries that you mentioned earlier in terms of our thoughts around like when the state should get involved in working with children and taking over, quote unquote, which I don't believe that they're doing from families. And I think that makes us unique and probably present some challenges from the pre-K through college. But yeah, on the Cultural. Kip, right. I mean, on the KIPP point, like 20 years ago, Mike Feinberg thought, you know, well, if we just have really good middle schools, we'll be okay. And we'll, you know, close these achievement gaps. And now they're starting in pre-K and going through KIPP through college. It's so progress. long work. Yeah. All right. But, you know, I think that's actually all the time we have for this discussion today. We actually didn't get to some of my questions. So Sarah, we'll have to have you on at a later date. I'd love to come back. Great. All right. And stay tuned because up next, it's everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. And we're back. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks, Alyssa. Did you watch the Nationals last week? I did not, but <laughs> I heard that it was just amazing. It was. Game. And of course, then Mike Petrilli sends us an email that says, stop working and watch the Nats game. I'm like, really? It was that great, huh? To so. be fair, that email was sent at like 5.52 p.m. <laughs> we so late we were, around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was, we were talking earlier. I hate baseball. I'm usually the one on the podcast rolling my yeah. eyes being like, ah, sportsing. But I watched and it was yeah. super tense and then it was heartbreaking and now I don't think I can do sports ever again. Got it. You talking about the final game? Yes, it was awful. It was, it was, it was one of the worst played games 
I've ever seen, but it was oh, exciting because of it. So oh, you picked wow. a very good game to watch. It is. <laughs> it was, was a, a so very stressful. unusually exciting baseball game. So stressful. Oh, Let's move on to less stressful topics, <laughs> right. which is research. What do you got for us this week? No, Let's research can be stressful. Okay, uh, that- but anyway, we have a new study out by Harvard researchers that examines the impact of reforms in Newark. We all remember this one, the $200 million gift by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, when he gave money to Newark. I think he even appeared on Oprah. With I think gift, it was on he? Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, the reform started in uh, eleven twelve after they got this Mac Daddy gift. Um, people, do people still use that word, or am I showing my age? I don't. I knew what you meant, Mac and Daddy? I've heard it before, right. but I haven't heard it, it in a was, while. It was it was the word that we used. Anyhow, I digress. <laughs> the study examined student growth data in Newark charter and district schools from two thousand nine through twenty sixteen, comparing students with similar prior achievement and demographics and attending schools with similar peers outside of Newark. So they matched them on prior achievement, demographics, and they made sure that the peers in their schools were also similar. They divide the numerous reforms that occurred in the period because there were a lot of them. Into it was a two, kind of spaghetti against the wall situation yes, there for a while. So there was two broad buckets of reforms. One they categorize as within school, and the other bucket is between school. And within school are the initiatives aimed at improving existing schools, obviously, including personnel changes. You may remember that Cami Anderson replaced more than half of principals. Mm-hmm. And then the common core implementation strategies are also in this bucket. And then also in this bucket are these things called uh, participation and renew schools, which are all the school turnaround efforts. So it's a big school turnaround initiative where principals had to reapply for their jobs. They were given freedom to, to hire their teachers. The students had extended learning day and they had better access to social services. All right. So that's a lot of within school stuff. And then they had this other book, bucket called between school reforms. And this was all the stuff aimed at facilitating student movement towards schools with higher achievement and growth. Okay. And these were things like school closures, charter expansion, and a universal enrollment system. So right. like the governance stuff more. Governance, but yeah, that's right. And, and open, I mean, just all the stuff that you're trying to entice kids to move elsewhere. Key finding, after five years of the reforms, Newark saw statistically significant gains in English and no significant change in math achievement growth above and beyond those observed by the comparison group. The trend line across the five years, however, was not straight. Average growth declined initially, which we see a lot in these things, in both sectors before bumping back up in 14, 15, and 15, 16, and before they eventually surpassed the starting point in English. Specifically, by 15, 16, Newark students were gaining 0.07 standard deviations more per year than in the baseline. And then they do this thing where they estimate, like, how much of this growth occurred and, you know, according to which bucket. And they Uh say about 62% of the English improvement was due to shifting enrollment from lower to higher growth district and charter schools. And about 38% was due to these within school improvement strategies that I just talked to you about. In math, between school shifts and enrollment, all those things, um, offset would have have been a decline in achievement growth within the average school. So although they didn't see the same changes in math, it also stemmed what could have been a worse scenario. Um, These changes again were added by the closure of low growth schools so again how many how many schools about 14 of them were closed in Mm -hmm. grades four through eight uh during the same years of the studies and the influx of students into high quality charter schools so that about doubled during the time period in the study the enrollment into charters about doubled um 
Analysts warn, however, in the last little section, I'm like, okay, other places are going to look at this. Hey, let's do this. And like, yeah, it's not so easy, right? Um, number one, Newark had the luxury of all these high quality charter operators mm-hmm. like Kip and Uncommon to take all these kids. Uh, the other thing was they closed a bunch of schools, but we all remember how politically charged that was. Oh, yeah. Um, and what they didn't say was that uh, Cammy had a complete uphill battle the entire time she was oh, yeah. in Newark. Um, leadership like that is rare. And, you know, leaders like that often pay the price by getting ousted. Um, so anyway, this was just really, really hard. But this is a pretty positive finding um, for what happened. Whether it's worth $200 million, I don't know. I guess people can argue about that. But there you have it. So I was going to say, based on the findings in ELA, that it sounds like personnel doesn't matter a ton. It's just, or at the school level, it's we should focus on closing schools. But then your note about Cami and kind of the broad leadership makes me think maybe the superintendent really matters and kind of the culture in the school yeah. or in the district. I mean, I don't know who else would have been willing to. I mean, she took a lot of abuse, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know. That t- the leadership like that, I mean, you couldn't have not done it with that. I mean, what a just... A in a, just a weird set of circumstances, right? That all came to descend upon Newark. Sometimes when we talk about like the growth we've seen in DC, mm-hmm. and we say, "Well, DC is kind of this unusual outlier kind of thing because of X, Y, Z." And that's what I felt like reading the study. Like you know, you had all these different dynamics occurring in Newark that probably are pretty darn hard to replicate. And I would argue that mm-hmm. some places um, wouldn't be willing to pay the price for that type of replication. Or necessarily get the capital to do that type of replication. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that kind of stuck out to me is that the ELA scores saw the biggest gains or the most statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Like the, I guess, received wisdom or like what makes the most intuitive sense is that ELA is harder to, you know, get test score gains Move than math needle. is. So that kind of stuck out to me. Did yeah, and I that? don't know. They didn't really hypothesize about that. I mean, it's, it's kind of a head scratcher, right? Because they're moving, they're a park state. Of course, I don't mm-hmm. know if New, New Jersey's still a park state, oh right? Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, don't put I'm me on the sure. spot. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of a head scratcher, right? Because, I mean, I had the luxury to look at some park items once upon a time One, for a study Fordham did. Tell me more about that study, Amber. <laughs> Forgot um, about that. Yeah, and ELA is 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 pretty rigorous on park, you know, in terms of what they're asking kids to do. So I don't have a hypothesis about about why they saw the change in, in, in ELA and not in math. Yes, it is a park state. There you go. Um, so as, you know, this was kind of, I think, Mark Zuckerberg's first big investment. This predates the founding of CZI. Are there any lessons as they kind of move into more of a philanthropic realm for them, for any other foundations who are, you know, wanting to bet big on a district or a turnaround? Yeah, strategy? I mean, I think, and we've said this before, and if Mike was here, he'd certainly reiterate this, is that if you're going to close schools, have a better place for kids yeah. to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes we know that that doesn't happen, you know, in in places. And in this in this circumstance, as the analyst pointed out, they had the KIPP schools, they had the uncommon mm-hmm. schools to go to, they were there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't always happen, for instance, here in D.C., although it's a lot better here in D.C. too, but there yeah. are certain places in Ward 7 and 8 where, you know, kids don't have as many options as they do uh, in other places. So I think that's the big lesson. And we found that in our Ohio study when yep. we looked at school closure that ago. Uh, when they had better schools to attend, um, yeah, you'd see these type of things. But if they don't, you know, you really got to figure out what are the pros and cons mm-hmm. of, of closing schools and and trying to get these, you know, and we know, again, it's really hard to lure these high quality operators to certain places. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and so that's a challenge too in some of these other uh, locales. You know, you're not going to get some of these operators to come to town for various reasons, whether it's a, you know, lower per pupil funding for charter sector or whatever it may be. Or are you kind of getting back to the initial point, like having the human capital there to like really drive it through and that's right. lay down on the railroad that's tracks right. in some cases? That some of these kiddos don't really want to live in some places, but they might want to live in, you know, I don't know, Newark. Eh, well, you got some great it's close to New York schools and yeah. it's close to New York. That's right. I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, went to school in Philly, so pro Philly, very <laughs> yeah, teachers. Right. Right. Anyway. Very cool. Well, super interesting. Definitely a study that's been making the rounds on Twitter and, of course, on Facebook. Had to make that joke. I'm sorry. Um, But super cool. So thank you very much, Amber. That's all the time we have for the Research Minute. And that's all the time we have for the Gadfly Show. Till next week. Brandon Wright. I'm Alyssa Schwank for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.